I'm Jacob Kurtzer. And I'm Kirsten Gelsdorf. And this is Beyond Aid, a podcast that takes you beyond the challenging headlines of humanitarian crises. And dives deeper into the people, ideas, and issues that may help us find ways to connect to humanitarian action. In today's conversation, I speak with Arathi Krishnan, Strategic Foresight Advisor at UNDP, about ethics and innovation, radical hope, and morality as accountability to each other. Arathi, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond Aid. Thanks for having me, Jacob. I wanted to ask you about your work at the intersection of technology and human rights. Can you tell us a bit about what strategic foresight is? Sure. Strategic foresight really is a multidimensional strategy approach where we try to look at what is emerging over the medium to long-term horizon and how that impacts on our actions today. For multilateral institutions or international organizations, we're really trying to understand what might disrupt us, what are emerging opportunities, and how then do we ensure that our policies, our strategies are able to respond to what might emerge into the future. The field of foresight relies on human brains, but also on new technologies and innovations. What sort of technological innovations do you draw on in your foresight work? Generally, foresight work does tend to be qualitative, though we do draw on a fair bit in terms of quantitative projections that support the work that we do. We draw on AI or modeling work to provide a baseline, but I think one of the strengths of foresight is it ensures a qualitative rigor to some of that modeling to stress test whether linearity is still um, going to be accurate. We know that isn't the case anymore because we're in very complex times and in complexity, linearity doesn't work. That's one of the benefits of foresight when blended with traditional projection models. At the intersection of technology and human rights, how do you see the development of these kinds of tools helping inform an environment that's more respectful of the human rights or, in our case, for humanitarian action? That's what my research at Harvard focused on, both at Carr and at Berkman, through the humanitarian lens. Very often in tech innovation, we are designing interventions to problem solve right in front of us. We want to fight the issue in front of us today. I was more interested in what are the impacts of the interventions that we are utilizing on marginalized, minoritized populations that we serve not just in terms of positive impact, but more importantly, in terms of harm impact. Quite often in the humanitarian space, when we are deploying technology interventions, we don't necessarily have a structured way that looks at medium to long-term harm. Do you think that working in the field of foresight or innovation is fundamentally optimistic or has it informed your worldview at all? Having done this work, has it changed the way you think about the future? Foresight, it's a very personal thing. You have to position yourself in terms of your own value system about whether you think the future is hopeful or not, but also whether you have agency to drive any change into that future. I am inherently, I suppose, a positive driven person. I'm a cup half full person. I believe in radical hope, but what the rigor of foresight work and also doing 
very deep systems transformation work helps us think through is not just rely on hope, but actually how do you make hope and a positive, equitable future something that we can all drive towards? One group's perspectives and perceptions of equitable or hopeful futures is not necessarily the same for different groups. And what is positive for one may dispossess another. I'm very much driven to ensure that which of those hopes gets prioritized when we're making decisions about which pathways we want to take is more balanced out than it, how it has been in the past. It is hope-driven, but it's unapologetically focused on historically dispossessed, minoritized folks. Talking about hope in the context of humanitarian crises can oftentimes be jarring for people. But what you're talking about is not hope as an ambition, but hope as an action, right? Like hope is something we have to work towards. A hundred percent. Hope by itself doesn't achieve anything. There's a quote by Raymond Williams. I really like to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair inevitable. In humanitarian action, we've always been driven by the frameworks of resilience to survive, to cope with shock or to recover quickly from shock, right? But resilience as a concept, when you ask historically dispossessed folks in any setting around the world, particularly in the global south, or from populations even in the countries we sit in now that are historically oppressed, people are exhausted about the concept of having to continuously be resilient, to just survive. Since when did we just say that actually in some countries or in some communities you can afford to strive for the stars, but in other communities all we're going to do is to help you survive? So no, I think hope forms the baseline of really challenging what it means to be resilient. Hope means that we're not just looking at livelihoods, but actually we're looking at dignified livelihoods. That doesn't mean that you have to work five jobs a day just to provide. It means that we have to look at how do we not reduce people to caricatures of their identity or harm them by what we think their identity markers should be. It's a really rigorous concept when you unpack it, but it also runs the risk of just being seen as fluffy if we leave it at nebulousness. So you talked about competing hopes, right? One group's aspirations may have run at odds and we can see the evidence of that manifesting with respect to the humanitarian universe and the way that the historically dispossessed or marginalized, their own identified aspirations may not be those of the groups that are there working with them. As someone working in the technology sector, how do we correct some of the existing bias in the design of these programs, in the design and our thinking? How do we make sure we don't replicate the same mistakes? I don't think that there are simplified answers for any of this, because at the end of the day, we're human beings and we're flawed no matter how well-intentioned we think we are. One of the first places to start for me is to interrogate whose needs are we prioritizing when we make a decision to go with a specific intervention? Are we prioritizing needs of the donor first, prioritizing need of the humanitarian agency, prioritizing needs of affected populations? And which in that sort of spectrum, which one has more weightage? The second thing I would say is very often, and humanitarian agencies do this all the time, when we choose to act or to deploy a specific type of tech innovation to respond to something that we think needs solving, 
We don't consult affected populations, and we've seen this come back and bite us. The concept of accountability and who actually is accountable for whatever might happen down the line is not something that we necessarily consider. The last thing I would say is it's the basic question of what could possibly go wrong with this. A more rigorous way of asking that question is who might potentially be harmed by this in what ways and where? For example, if we're biometric identity markers, could they down the line into the future be used in a way to actually harm the populations that we're trying to support now? And we've already seen this happen numerous occasions just over the last year alone. Just thinking through that would be incredibly powerful for us to double check our assumptions and blind spots and also our biases. Certainly the humanitarian sector is in many ways historically underpinned by moral arguments. On a daily basis, individuals and organizations are making very heavy decisions with moral impact. Do you think that there is a unique moral element or moral calculus that needs to be considered with the adaptation or integration of any new, extremely unique new technology, given the scale of advances that technology has, the leaps that we're seeing. Morality is something in the humanitarian space we presume happens. And I think you are so right that we make moral decisions every day. I started off this conversation talking about where are we in our own value system, about whether we feel the future is hopeful. One of the things that I've learned, just because we all work in the for good space, it doesn't mean that our intentions and our value systems are all alike. How we got here is also not alike. The fault line in our psyche is assuming that all humanitarians mean to do well. But good intention alone does not mitigate harm. Good intention alone can cause harm. We say we have the fundamental principles that we have to hold dear. We have to remain neutral. I've had incredibly thoughtful debates with, with wonderful thinkers and speakers around, well, whose morality? The, the fundamental principles were designed at a very, very specific point of time in our history. And it was a very specific group of people that came together to say, these are the fundamental principles. At no point have we been brave enough to check, are these still fit for purpose in this new complex future we're moving into? It's so complex right now, and it's going to continue to be complex. I mean, I, do, I wouldn't say that they need to be got rid of, but do they need to evolve in any way? And the same thing is arguably said for human rights frameworks, that they should be enough, but we know that they're not enough. Sushma Raman and Bill Schultz wrote this book called The Coming Good Society. They argue, and it's also where the work of Foresight comes in, rights frameworks today are not enough anymore for the types of human rights issues that we're dealing with, for digital interventions, for converging conflicts and converging crises. The last point I will make here is on the concept of decoloniality. Ethics frameworks, again, were designed through a certain lens. But whose ethics? For what purpose? Why? Are they shared in the same way by everybody in the whole world? No, that's not true at all. 
in some parts of the world that we grow up in or that we see ourselves residing in at the moment, morality is seen as an individual pursuit. But in some parts of the world, it's actually not seen as an individual pursuit, but it's actually seen through our accountability to each other, to communities. But an ethics framework that we work through today don't often look at community ethics as part of that as well. The moral compass of what we do does need interrogation and the moral compass in terms of whose morality are we talking about here and whose morality gets dispossessed is also a very uncomfortable topic that we don't often address. It's funny to think about the humanitarian principles and some of these foundational documents. You look at, say, for example, the United States, where we still refer back to a document written in the late 1700s by white male slaveholders as guiding so many of our public policy elements. And you just sort of say, we probably need to interrogate these concepts and, and what they mean for the universe we're in today, as opposed to just considering them sacrosanct. You brought up this concept of decolonization or decolonial thinking. And do you think there's something unique about the tools of foresight or its technological innovations in general that can help animate that process? I just recently wrote a chapter uh, for a book called Sacred Civics that just came out. And the chapter was focusing on unsettling the coloniality of foresight. I mean, I'm a humanitarian aid worker. I remember first coming into the space. I didn't even know that what I was starting to do was foresight. I didn't know that, that this field existed. And then when I first started getting into it, I would find myself in spaces where I would be the only woman in that circle, let alone the only person of color in that circle. And how I experienced the future and my ideas and visions were very different from everybody else's. And just like the same tools behind design thinking, behind innovation, all of these things that were taught, even basic international relations, they do absolutely have to be interrogated. The tools were designed in a specific part of the world to be utilized through specific lenses, but they don't allow us to interrogate whether ideas of progress that we hold or ideas of development or what developed looks like is actually what everybody wants. It doesn't also allow us to interrogate things like our own colonial past or our historical past or being colonized. What does all of that do to our ideas about who we are? These tools, it makes an assumption of homogeneity that we all have the same aspirations, that if given the choice to say, yes, I am hopeful for the future and yes, I have agency over the future, that we'll all say yes right? Because we all want the same things. But that's not true. I've run these processes all over the world. And in some, the Asian communities that I come from, my fellow people would say, well, yeah, I may be hopeful for the future, but I don't feel like I've got agency because I believe in a higher power or I have familial obligation that prevents me from chasing my own dreams or ideas about who I want to be. So no, they're not. They assume homogeneity in its implementation and through that, it actually whitewashes nuance. Are there examples that you could point to of the effective and well-interrogated implementation of technology that you would say, that's how we should do it? Yeah, I love the work of Indigenous AI. And instead of just drawing on generic ethical AI principles, it actually draws on indigenous protocols to form the basis of AI protocols. 
Nia Tarot is another example that I really love and I draw on and I use them a lot, actually. They are an Indigenous co-led organization that works with Indigenous communities to map their own well-being and that of their lands rather than traditional mapping geospatial technologies where experts come in to map lands on people's behalf. The Satellite Sentinel Project They were designed to deploy remote sensing technologies to predict mass atrocities. But that's not so much what inspires me. I'm inspired when they decided to wind down. For a couple of reasons, they found themselves unable to actually generate action despite the quality of their reports. But that aside, what they realized themselves was that they were operating without clear ethical guidelines and leaving open questions about how they could evaluate the line between help and harm. And so they couldn't actually predict the consequences of their actions, either intended or unintended. And not that this was the only reason, but it was one of the basis of reasons why they chose to wind down. And to me, that's so incredibly thoughtful and reflective that in the same vein that I would hold up Indigenous AI and Nia Tero, I would also hold up Satellite Sentinel. It is such an interesting example because I even remember a lot of various contestations about their work at the time in terms of the way that what they were producing may have implicated context dynamics and it raised the train question. If you're reporting on movements of armed actors in one direction and you make that report public and then they go in the other direction, do you have moral culpability for what may, yeah. it may come from that? That's a great example of the moral question of humanitarian action in general and, and actually interrogating. I don't think anyone's doing no harm, but are we doing more harm than good? And I think that's the point. Are we doing more harm than good? We fall back on these platitudes of leave no one behind, do no harm. Are we really interrogating that though? I mean, I mean, I say this having sat in innovation teams, having sat in tech teams, and it's not that everybody's got nefarious intent, but we're also driven by competing priorities, competing actions. We don't take the time to genuinely think through the potential impacts of what we do. In my work, the only, the, uh, we keep saying this, the only thing we know for sure right now is that everything's uncertain. So we're trying to look at ways to measure uncertainties. I don't think we can hide behind these platitudes of we're humanitarians or we're not intending to do harm anymore because if our very acts end up causing harm down the line, then our work is a fallacy. To wind it up, are you optimistic for the humanitarian sector that with time we can get it right and be more efficient, more effective and more responsive to the actual needs and interests and concerns of the populations with whom we're working? I am hopeful overall. It's why I keep doing the work that I do. And I recognize the privilege and luxury that I hold. Even in the space of work that I do, I've seen how we aren't able to have these kinds of conversations. Jacob, we wouldn't have had this conversation three years ago, five years ago. There are more and more people seeking alternatives. There are more bridges being built. And the difficulty in the humanitarian sector mirrors the difficulty we face in the world. Those that hold on to the status quo that are used to doing things the way they've been doing it for a long time don't necessarily want to give up power. It's easier right now to feel hopeless and to be overcome by grief and trauma. But the thing that gives me joy is I look for the helpers. 
I look for those that are doing the organizing. I look for those that are mobilizing grassroots action, locally led action. I look at the, those that are advocates fighting to make sure we're all aware of our rights. So I look for the helpers. And when you look for the helpers, you realize that no matter what, no matter how much evil it feels like we're facing right now, it will, to the best of our abilities, be balanced because of the helpers. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining Beyond Aid. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having this conversation with me. Next time on Beyond Aid, we will go beyond news and hear from Jess Alexander, policy editor at The New Humanitarian, about the challenges and trends she's uncovered over her career reporting on humanitarian action. Thank you for listening to Beyond Aid. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. To make sure you don't miss our next episode, subscribe to Beyond Aid on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.